Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Today's episode is brought to you by Sorry to Bother You. A movie that you finally saw? I did, and I loved it. It's so great. And here's the word I'm going to use. Unexpected, right? I thought I was going in for one thing, and I was continually like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know what it kind of reminded me of? What? Um, did you ever see Robert Townsend's The Hollywood Shuffle? No, but oh. now I should, because if it's anything like Sorry to Bother You, I'm in. But I love this movie. I don't want to tell you anything about it besides everyone's awesome in it. You said to me that you would fight for this movie to be on the list of the AFI Top 100. So let's get that going, guys. Go see Sorry to Bother You. Which is uh, now playing all over the place. Get in. Go see it. Make some time. Tell a friend. Go see it again. Boots Riley cannot wait to see what he does uh, next. And uh, can I just say more Danny Glover and stuff? Really enjoyed Danny Glover in this movie. More Danny Glover and stuff. I want to tell you about this brand new podcast called Thug Passion Presents, hosted by Shalala Sharp and Courtney Fearington. Um, these are two people who love underrated black movies, and they're going to break them down every week with fellow comedians, and they're going to celebrate the influence of these films and these characters on today's culture and society. Um, if you like How Did This Get Made, if you like Unspooled, if you like the canon, I think this fits in a perfect uh, niche right there. Uh, it's a really fun show. I've heard like one or two episodes, and it really – it's just very different than what else is out there. So check out Thug Passion Presents on Stitcher Premium. You can go to stitcherpremium.com slash thugpassion and use the promo code UNSPOOLED for a free month of Stitcher Premium. Explore. Enjoy. See if you like it as much as I do. The year is 1986, and war is hell if you're an actor under the command of Oliver Stone. The movie? Platoon. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And thank you for listening to our show where we go through the AFI's top 100 films of all time. 
the 2007 list. Now, before we get into Platoon, I want to go back in time a little bit and talk about some of the movies that we've been talking about here on the show. Uh, you've gotten on our Twitter page, on our Facebook fan group, and on our Earwolf message boards, and you've left a lot of great comments for us. Uh, the big thing that we got called out for this week was um, that Ginger Rogers was not singing backwards in The Gold Diggers of 1923. She was singing in Pig Latin. Uh, so we stand corrected there. And, of course, people brought up to me that I was wrong saying that Jay-Z and Beyonce would make a perfect Bonnie and Clyde because they've already done it. I didn't think it through, people. I know that they've already done it. I just – it was in the moment I was going with it, and you corrected me, and I stand corrected. Although uh, our friend Brandon Ford brought up an interesting point. It's interesting that many rappers want to associate themselves with Clyde because he was impotent. And so by looking for a Bonnie to your Clyde, it is kind of sending a weird mixed message for a very uh, oftentimes aggressive form of music and lifestyle. Uh, I thought that was interesting. And one of the big things that uh, kind of, I think, exploded out of this podcast was we were sent a clip from Eyes on Cinema at the Real EOC, which sent us a video that was uh, made in the 80s where Stanley Kubrick spoke to a reporter about the true ending of 2001. Uh, it's very rare to kind of see Kubrick come out and be so um, – forward-facing with what he was trying to do. And we have that clip, and we're going to play it for you at the end of the episode because we know that you want to talk about Platoon right now. So uh, if you're interested to hear Kubrick explain the ending of 2001, wait until the end, and we will play that for you there. So thank you so much. And now, uh, before we get into Platoon, we gave you one of the stupidest assignments of all time last week. We asked you to make your best um, warfare noises uh, on our voicemail. So this is a collection of the best gun and battle sounds that you could make uh, in our voicemail. So take it away. This is Michael from Minnesota. Artillery barrage. That was as stupid as I wanted it to be. <laughs> that, that was awesome. Thank you for everyone uh, calling with your own uh, Michael Winslow impersonations there. We did not get Michael Winslow, so um, there is no winner because none of you will be better than Michael. And uh, with the idea of no winners, let's get into the Vietnam film. Platoon. All right, so the movie is Platoon. And this is a movie that I remember seeing as a kid because I thought this was like a cool war action movie. I don't know why I thought that, but like to me this was like did you see Platoon? Was now it, like, that, it was like blended in with all the Rambos for you? 100%. Like it felt very much to me like Top Gun and Platoon were in the same sentence. Watching it, <laughs> whoa, not at all. Although they kind of were. I mean, these are two movies that come out in 1986. I will tell you why I think my association with this movie is this way. Um, because I was obsessed with playing the Platoon 
Nintendo game. Did you know that there was a Platoon Nintendo game? No, but I would like to think it is more fun than the Jaws Nintendo game. Oh, definitely more fun. But as I watched the playthrough online, I was like, this game is problematic. You are walking around in the jungle, looks all nice, and then randomly just shooting people who come out like with a gun, just like, pff, pff. It's, it's very much like Elias just gunning down random uh, Viet Cong. It is extremely violent for the time, but this game, I think, made me associate Platoon as just a run-of-the-mill action movie. I think Hamburger Hill, Platoon, what was that Clint Eastwood movie, Heartbreak Ridge? Uh, you know, I'm going to start you with a blank because... These sort of war movies have always just bored me, and I avoided them most of my childhood. Oh, really? But here are your description of the Platoon game. I can't decide if that is a perfect reading of Platoon or 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 a sellout of everything Platoon is trying to say, because Platoon seems to be a bit of both. It seems to be a bit of like, this is what war turns you into, a crazed little kid killer with your with your video game controller, killing everything like life doesn't matter anymore. In a way, it could be dead on. I mean, there was something about this movie that I never really took in, and it it affected me. This movie is incredibly atmospheric. Like, you are in the world of being in Vietnam from the moment the film starts. You know, the the back of the Chinook opens, and Charlie Sheen is just, like, in the shit immediately. The dirt is so high in their face, but they're fresh-faced. You're basically watching him go from a fresh-faced teen to this hardened broken man. Yeah, he sees these hardened broken men when he gets off the plane, a guy who just stares at him as though he's one of the living dead. And that's who Charlie Chin is going to become. You watch this film go from their astonishment at seeing humans in body bags about how horrified he is to get off the plane and immediately be greeted by the sight of other dead soldiers to dead soldiers just being a thing that exists, to contributing to the manufacture of more dead soldiers in body bags. It's a full circle loop, and he really does plunge you straight into that where we go straight from this tarmac to so deep inside the jungle that the camera's hidden behind leaves. You can barely see people. You are buried. Well, I think that what this movie made me feel was like a sense of claustrophobia, and I got really anxious. I mean, the small details that aren't even called out, like there's a morning where Charlie Sheen's character wakes up, and he just has these giant welts, like these bug bite welts all over his face, and you feel this movie, it feels oppressive. And there's not much dialogue, really, in the first half. I mean, it's Characters are talking, but it's not like your typical war movie. You are you are using Chris as your eyes, but you are there with them, it feels like. Every yes. scene is long. The battle scenes are long. Charlie Sheen is not getting a backstory. You're exactly right at the beginning. They're not saying, here's this posh kid and telling us right up front who he is. He's a blank because he's a blank to everybody else around him. He says that nobody even wants to know his name because he'll probably die soon because he's fresh meat. You know, I have a question for you. In the context of film at this point, was there ever a movie like this? Did they make war films that kind of were, in a one respect, a little anti-American? I mean, this movie does not show American soldiers positively. Yeah, I mean, kind of yes and no. We're going to have so many Vietnam War films to get through on the list. This is, I think, one of three of them. And it's the lowest rated one. Platoon is at 86. Above it, we have The Deer Hunter at 53. We have Apocalypse Now at number 30. But both of those are pretty different from this. You know, Apocalypse Now is very metaphorical, very hallucinogenic. Yeah. 
And the deer hunter also takes this wild turn. It's not so much about the battlefield. It's about the psyche of the men involved when they try to come home, how much they can't come home, how much they live there forever, mentally and physically. This is radically different because it's a war film with a touch of PTSD, which we had in Rambo, which is not on the list. Right, yeah. You know, the very Should first be. Rambo is very focused on PTSD and trying to adjust back to civilian life. But this might be one of the first war films that tried to capture the physical chaos of this war. We're watching this. I notice I have that little thing in me where I'm like, I can't tell where the bad guy is. That's annoying. Right. And usually I think of that as a flaw. But to Oliver Stone, it was part of the machinery. He wanted to feel that confusion. There is something about those battle sequences. And I think because you get into those battle sequences and and you see the look of fear on their face and you see the, the, the randomness of one person next to you getting shot and you getting out alive – that brings a sequence, which I really want to get into in a little bit, uh, of the village really home because you're so with them in battle. And then when you're there, I feel like you're so with these people in that village. That, that scene uh, destroyed me. It just took me. It took me down. You're kind of nailing, I think, exactly how audiences felt in 86, which was in 1986, people thought, I've, I know the Vietnam War. It was the war that was televised. People were watching the Vietnam War at night. But they weren't really watching Oliver Stone's war is what he felt like. You know, he was a kid a lot like Charlie Sheen. He got into Yale. He was the son of some pretty wealthy folks. He dropped out of Yale twice, actually. And the second time he dropped out of Yale, he joined the military. And he felt like what he saw, the absolute chaos and carnage he saw, he was there about the same time as Charlie Sheen's character. About 14 months, right? Yeah, about 14 months. was just never captured by the cameras because there weren't that many camera operators who were there in the jungle with them shooting war. They were usually back at the base where stuff was a lot calmer. Right. And so he was trying to tell the audiences of America in 86, you think you know Vietnam. You actually have no idea what Vietnam was really like. And I think what he does so kind of amazingly well is – split the platoon into two sides. You're seeing two perspectives of how to approach war. i not a, in the military, never have been, but I did do a USO tour, and it was really interesting to be on those bases in the middle of, uh, of Iraq. And you would find pockets of people that were hanging out together, and they were into, like, heavy metal and, and kind of showing videos. And on another side, it was a lot more clean cut, you know. And you would go from base to base, and within those bases, kind of hang out with different troops. You know, the most uh, basic example I can say is that it's like a high school, you know. And there are the cool kids, there are the jocks, there are the stoners, there are this. And he kind of shows how that mentality plays out. Wherever you are, you're going to— section off into different groups. You're just not soldier. And I think that that's what he does kind of really well here. It's like Charlie Sheen starts off clean. He goes in and gets hanging out with the potheads. And then he goes uh, and is forced kind of to hang out with Barnes's crew, which are also good soldiers, but they are a little, a little bit more violent, a little bit more animalistic, a little, a little bit more racist. Let's be yeah. honest. They have a Confederate flag on their wall. Oh, They're right. more bro -y. After we get through this transition period that we were talking about where we don't really know who Charlie Sheen is yet, everything's sort of vague, he gets injured a little bit in the back of his neck. He winds up at base camp. And this is where Oliver Stone really shows us that divide. Uh, and he shows it with a needle drop that I want to make fun of a bit. Okay. But to set this up, we have here... Charlie Sheen getting invited to go hang out with Willem Dafoe and the kind of cool stoner kids. Then the worm has definitely turned for you, man. Feel good? Yeah, it feels good. I got no pain in my neck, man. Feeling good's good enough. 
And he has this Bonnie and Clyde moment where remember how we were talking about in Bonnie yeah. and Clyde, like the relationship between like sex and intimacy and guns. Yeah. He has this Bonnie and Clyde moment where Willem Dafoe puts a gun in his mouth that's also a bong. Put your mouth on this. And we cut from that scene to <laughs> the rival camp, I guess. And I want you guys to listen to what they're playing in the back of the song because it's a little obvious stone. Come on, let's, let's take it down a notch. <laughs> <laughs> Man, where the hell is everybody, man? Wow, we did not <laughs> yeah. even notice that. He goes straight to Merle Haggard, Ogie from Muskogee. We don't smoke marijuana, just in <laughs> case you weren't sure why these guys were different. You know, it's interesting because I feel like this movie is so um, kind of beautifully subtle, as opposed to kind of the Oliver Stone that I think we know now, which is so kind of overtly, like, conspiracy-minded. I think everything... Post JFK is a different Oliver Stone, and but yeah, you can see the elements of, <laughs> of the one that we know now. I mean, uh, he underscores it so heavily that not only are the guys in the in the kind of macho Kevin Dillon side, yeah. side of things not smoking the local weed, they're specifically drinking American Kentucky bourbon. Yes, they're specifically like screwing with each other and making like vaguely homophobic jokes. And then when you cut back to Willem Dafoe and his cool kids. They're slow dancing with each other to tracks of my tears. And there's this this basically schism between love and war, like love and macho kind of a macho aggression. Yeah, it, it's interesting to see that side. And I feel like that's exactly the thing that feels so fresh about this movie. I don't know if that's the fact that Oliver Stone is drawing from his direct experiences. You know, and I think he has an interesting vantage point that no filmmaker had ever had about Vietnam before. I think he's the first Vietnam vet to ever win an Oscar. Interesting thing about that scene, those guys in the peace and love tent were actually high when they shot that scene, but it backfired for them. They all decided, like, we need to get in the character, we'll get super high, but by the time they actually shot the scene, it had all worn off, so then they were just really groggy, and none of them really wanted to shoot. So I think you see an element of that, and actually rewatching it here with you, I'm like, oh yeah, you can kind of just see, like, everything is probably even slower than it was intended to be. Yeah, in a way where for a second I was like, is that even weed or is it something even more hallucinogenic? What is happening over there? Willem Dafoe's eyes, he leans into that camera in that uncomfortable fish islands where his yeah. face is distorted. And Willem Dafoe, love him to death, has a face that's already a little distorted. Oh, yeah. So it's like distortion on distortion. You feel high just watching that. What's so interesting about Stone's biography is when he gets home from the war, he uses his GI Bill to go to NYU and study film. Interesting. And his professor there, guess who his professor was? Who? A pretty unknown film guy. Nobody took him that seriously. He'd made one thing, not a big deal. Name was Martin Scorsese. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. Martin Scorsese was Oliver Stone's first teacher. And, I mean, Stone said, because this was back in a time when you couldn't just watch things whenever you wanted yeah. to, uh, that Martin Scorsese always showed up to class looking really tired because he'd stay up every night watching all of the old movies on cable TV because he had no way to watch them Otherwise, so he always looked exhausted. And this is what Scorsese had to say about Oliver Stone. And uh, Oliver. Oliver was very quiet. I remember him being very quiet. And I I knew that he had come from Vietnam and was just uh, out of the service. 
It was not outgoing in any way. It was very quiet and uh, uh, gentle. I remember that. And I remember basically it was, uh, as a person, I could tell by the, by the, the aura that, that, was, that he gave out that uh, it wasn't necessary to uh, uh, engage him in any kind of conversation other than what we were doing with the class. He was a person who uh, obviously had gone th- some, through something that none of us there had underst- uh, could ever really understand unless we had gone through it ourselves. So I don't want to deal with that part of it. Uh, he didn't even engage you in that part. He didn't make a big deal of it. He was just very quiet. Yeah, the very first thing he made in that class, his very first film, was about a guy like him returning home from war. Like Stone himself referred to who he was at that moment, that he was at NYU film school, as a, quote, Travis Bickle type, which really wow. got me thinking that this really wasn't just a teacher-student relationship. I think there's an argument here that Oliver Stone influenced Scorsese, that Scorsese might have made Taxi Driver riffing off this guy who was in his film classes. Wow. And then later, Oliver Stone writes Scarface for him while he's on a bunch of cocaine and quitting cocaine. But this is where they collide. Like, this is where <laughs> this their is careers the moment. Well, take off together. It's interesting because he remembers him. Clearly, he impressed on him in some way. I wonder if in that class is when Oliver Stone wrote his first script, which was what you said, uh, kind of based on his experience in Vietnam. But he wanted Jim Morrison to be the lead and sent it to Jim Morrison. The original version of Platoon was uh, a lot more mythic, right? The character dies in Vietnam and then goes to the underworld. And it's a lot of uh, mythology. And Oliver Stone said, you know, he couldn't really deal with Vietnam in a realistic way yet. And he wanted to kind of combine this like 60s kind of spiritualism with the Vietnam experience. And he thought it would be really cool because Jim Morrison kind of represented like two sides of that coin. Well, that's so interesting because, you know, we did Bonnie and Clyde last week. And Oliver Stone has also always said he was really influenced by Bonnie and Clyde. And I was getting all like, whoa, there's so much mythology in here. Yeah. And it feels like he was leaning into that very directly. He would have gotten home from the war right when Bonnie and Clyde was in theaters. And actually, wait, I found this weird quote. Remember how I was saying that Bonnie and Clyde reminded me a lot of The Odyssey? Mm -hmm. Well, Oliver Stone said this about Platoon. He said, to me, Vietnam was very much like the Iliad, a country beating on foreign shores for 10 years with endless intercene warfare. So, whoa, man, we all got to get our Homer on. Everything is going on. I love it. And Homer is like Homer Simpson, who is always everywhere. Tell me there is a Simpsons (laughs) clip about Platoon. There is. Okay. There is. There is. It's subtle, though. Okay. And what I want to do is I want to play two clips for you back to back. Okay. We're going to start with Platoon, the original. And this is from the ending of Platoon as the camera pans across fields of broken bodies. And then we're going to segue into The Simpsons, where I want you to picture an incredibly muscular, ripped Marge Simpson looking around Moe's Tavern after she has recently torn it to pieces. Lifting a body above her head. And she's heavy breathing like she's just lived through some shit. You know, I want to talk about Bonnie and Clyde because this movie answered the issue that I had with Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde, I liked. I thought it was good. You know, obviously more than good. But emotionally, it didn't hit me like this movie. And I think, you know, we talked a lot about how that was the first time this level of violence was shown on screen. And I think what this movie did, and I've seen plenty of violent movies uh, my entire life, but I still felt 
uh, a connection to it. And the violence here felt darker and harder than I'm used to. Yeah, we're kind of on a death streak. A little bit, yeah. Powerful, 100-sided, mighty die. You have taken <laughs> us to the dark lands. I mean, from Titanic to Bonnie and Clyde to this, we're watching a lot of mass death, honestly. Yes. I mean, here, you know, what I felt was the conflicted nature. You felt like I've never shot a gun before. You know, the original ending of Platoon, uh, Charlie Sheen did not kill uh, Barnes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he let him live. He just walks away and like Barnes is yelling like, you pussy, you pussy. Wow, it's- that makes me think that Barnes really wanted to die. Uh, you gutless bastard. Get back here. I believe Barnes was not, <laughs> I was going to say, not a healthy guy. No, but I mean, he'd gone mad. He would kill anyone who kind of got in his way. And, you know, I think whether or not he was in the war that was a personality type. I don't think the war made him that way. But what if it did? Because right. what Platoon never does is it never has Barnes sit down around a campfire with his bottle of whiskey and say, here's how I got my scars. Right. And tell you a story of so much horror that it would frame him for you for the rest of the movie where you would say, he survived that. You know what? He can feel however he wants to feel about being in Vietnam. Oliver Stone doesn't give you that, but those scars make you guess. Like if he had just been clean-faced – we wouldn't necessarily know he'd been through any more trauma than what everybody else had seen. No. But that's why I think it's so telling that when he gets into his first physical altercation with Charlie Sheen, he takes out a knife and he scars his face. He says, you're going to be a little bit more like me now. And that, I believe, starts the second half of the movie, which is a little bit of a tonal change from the first half. I think a lot of war movies have that uh, in it. Like Full Metal Jacket, clearly there's two sides of that film. And – if I was to critique Platoon, I would say this is the part of the film where I kind of uh, was not as much on the edge of my seat as I was for the first half. I feel like the first half did a great job of, you know, very much like Kubrick letting you be there. And then the second half became more plot driven. You know, it's it's Charlie Sheen trying to get his revenge or come to terms with what is going on. and and Yeah, it's the difference between suspense and action. Yes. And so the second half of this movie becomes action. And it's interesting that people probably came to the theater to see action. That poster of Platoon is Willem Dafoe with his arms up to the sky. Now, I know that's based on a famous picture. But when I thought about that watching this movie, I'm like, that is the most morbid image you can have as your poster image. I mean, that is not... A triumphant <gasps> moment. Oh, my God. It's the French Connection pose from that poster. Oh, wow. Whoa. That's another man in the throes of death, arms up, giant on the poster. Wow, you're totally right. And to see that on the poster, I just couldn't get over that because it, not that it's a spoiler, but just that it kind of um, commercializes a moment in the film that is uh, so full of this deep gravitas, I guess. You know, it, it's it's an intense moment. And what's fascinating is we were talking in the Bonnie and Clyde episode about how they have squibs now. Right. There don't seem to be that many squibs in Platoon for all of the shooting. Like, yeah. Like when in that stretch, when Elias is getting shot and hunted and killed, basically, he's being, it reminded me of the footage I've seen of, say, like, the helicopter wild boar hunts in Texas. Oh, yeah. Heard of this? yeah. I have. Where you hunt them from from helicopters. That's what the footage looked like to me. You almost aren't totally sure he's getting shot when you hear the gunfire because they're also shooting at the people behind him. 
and you don't see blood coming out of him. It's, it's an interesting choice to not have the blood coming out of him. What I think was interesting, too, is the casting of this movie. Obviously, it went through so many different changes. But, you know, at this point, uh, Defoe is known for being a villain. In Streets of Fire. Oh, oh that's such a good movie where he's got overalls on <laughs> and the soundtrack is so cool. I would argue with you that it's a good movie. Uh, and then uh, and then Tom Berenger is the all-American good guy. Like, you know, he's kind of more of this kind of soapy actor. And so they kind of switch roles here too, which I think is interesting for the idea of, you know, war takes everyone in and then spits you out in different ways. You come in as you – you come out differently than you go in. Yeah, I think they go – to me, a little hard with the Defoe was a saint character. Mm-hmm. They make him so saintly where he doesn't do anything wrong. Right. Really. Like he comes in. He tries to rescue the villagers when they're getting attacked. Uh, he has this scene right here where when everybody else just wants to get the hell out of Vietnam, he really likes it. Yeah. I love this place at night. The stars. There's no right or wrong in them. They're just there. That's a nice way of putting it. I love that little scene about the stars, but I think what kind of adds some context to it is um, who Elias was based on. And this is uh, Willem Dafoe speaking about that. Really on. He talked about Elias being an Indian. That was very important to him. And the curious thing was he was able to project that onto me. Uh, The documentary, of course, that we're talking about is a making of Platoon, a tour of the Inferno, which was actually made right after the film kind of came out or maybe a couple of years later. They're very young Johnny Depp in there, uh, very young Wilm Dafoe, all talking about their experiences in a very unvarnished and uh, in many times un-PC way. Uh, I'll let you interpret that any way you want, but uh, be warned. I think the idea that Elias is based on a Native American is it's a different point of view, you know, and 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 maybe it suffered from uh, a miscasting because I think the idea or maybe the stereotype of a Native American person is they're more in touch with the the world and where they fit in the world and why they're doing what they're doing. They're a little bit more thoughtful than just a crass American. Well, what's so interesting about this Willem Dafoe character, who I find so just Jesus-y, I mean, mm-hmm. I think the people even call him Jesus at one point, is that you can picture... Oliver Stone's buddy, Martin Scorsese, watching this movie and saying, he is a good Jesus. I'm going to put him in the last temptation of Christ. And <laughs> he's going to do Exactly. And he's going to do a lot of the same things that the Elias character does here, which is wrestling with the nature of, of faith. Do I believe in what I'm doing? Am I doing the right thing? Vietnam is almost like the religion. Are we here for the right reasons? Do we believe in America and what America wants? All these actors, these very young actors who've all gone on to different levels of success, some megastars, some seemingly never worked again besides with Oliver Stone. Yeah, megastars like Johnny Depp, who I didn't even recognize. Oh, yeah. I remember Johnny Depp being in this because I was a big 21 Jump Street fan, uh, the TV show. Pretty great show. And I remember going, like, I got to see Platoon because I got to see what Johnny Depp is doing in Platoon. You know? <laughs> he's like, got two lines and then he's dying. All right. <laughs> but – You know, Stone kind of took these young Hollywood actors and made them into soldiers. Um, A lot of the stories that you read about the making of Platoon are pretty intense. He took this entire cast and they spent two weeks 
in the Philippine jungle, digging holes to live in, eating from ration cans, carrying real weight, staying in character. There were no showers or no toilets. Everyone had to rotate on a night watch. Um, I heard when they woke up in the morning, they had to take turns punching each other in the stomach. Oh, wow. I mean, this was where all the trope of, you know, directors wanting actors to go to boot camp comes from this movie. Here's uh, kind of how Stone was perceived on set. So I knew what I was <laughs> going to be dealing with. Everyone hated him so much it was embarrassing. But he wanted it that way. He'll stop at nothing. I remember when we were doing the scene where I was about to, I was about to croak. Rain was pissing down on us, you know. The rain was I was I was letting the rain get into my mouth, you know, because it was awful, and it, you know, just making me sick. I'd start the scene and I say, Chris, you know, talking to Charlie. You'll be okay, man. Oliver would cut, but he didn't cut. Like he just sort of he just screamed, cut. He said, bullshit, do it again. So he's just like that kind of thing. Like John C. McGinley is like people hated him because he really made them, you know, he crushed them. Well, it makes you think that a young actor who went to audition for this role and did not get it was maybe lucky. There's a young actor. You might know him. His name is Ben Stiller. Oh, really? Yeah. He shows up to audition for Platoon. He gets there and he says, Oliver Stone looked at me and said, you're cute. And that was it. And he did not get to audition after that moment, which makes sense because what does Ben Stiller make that's his best movie ever? Tropic Thunder, which is basically about a group of actors forced to live in boot camp, going through hell. And he, in fact, even quotes a line from Platoon while he's mocking it. All right, that's enough of this insubordination. If the machine breaks down... We break down. Hey, man, you know how it That's amazing. I did not realize that. Um, also, this movie also has a little uh, Easter egg for Good Morning Vietnam. If you've noticed that when they're cleaning the latrines, you hear, Good Morning Vietnam! But clearly not the Robin Williams version of it. But yeah, he treated these actors so badly. You know, Charlie Sheen was getting, like, his chest ripped up because he wanted him not to wear a shirt, and he called him, like, a California pussy. I mean, when you watch this documentary about Platoon, the language that the actors and Oliver Stone are using in it is not acceptable, and I don't think even acceptable back in the 80s. Yeah, I will say, going back to Platoon and watching Charlie Sheen and hearing more about what he went through— makes me have 1% more empathy for Charlie Sheen. Because how do you do this movie and come back totally normal? You know, how do you come back as the star of Platoon and not be a little affected when you get back to your Hollywood life? Yeah. Even in the production of the film, he built in these like little trap doors that would constantly fuck with our actors. He shot the movie sequentially. So when people died in the film, they left. So That's you like started survivor. To, yeah, you started to feel and the actors started to feel like these people were dead. And I do think that, you know, for shooting for as, you know, 50 days in the jungle, it is going to leave some reverberation there. I mean, John C. McGinley, he had just um gotten like brain surgery and he started having Big freakouts on the film, especially towards the end. So when you see him going, like, I want to go to Hawaii. Give me three days in Hawaii. And when he's hiding under the body, that energy, that manicness that's coming through, according to John C. McGinley, was not acting. That was him at the end of his rope because this movie had taken that much of a toll on him. Yeah. I mean, those insects aren't stunt insects. They were in a place with tons of 
everything at you all over the place. When they land in the Philippines where they shot the movie, there was a revolution immediately. I think Willem Dafoe was the first person to land. He lands in the Philippines. Immediately, Ferdinand Marcos is deposed, and he is told, the movie's probably canceled, but you are also stuck here. Oh, my and God. And then Oliver Stone apparently managed to re-bribe the new government in order to get the movie made, but you're living in a moment of complete instability. And they are fending for themselves in the jungle. There's this story where Willem Dafoe was really thirsty, so he filled up his canteen in a river. Yes. And people are like, I don't know about that river. And he's like, don't worry, I got these pills. I'm fine. And he drinks the canteen. They realize that there's a dead pig right there. And he gets sick. Ugh. He starts hallucinating for 24 hours. I mean, that's almost Titanic clam chowder level crazy. Yeah, except that he poisoned himself. <laughs> <laughs> Are you drowning in credit card debt? I know that there's a time in my life where I was just paying the interest on these things, right? My bills were staying the same. I could never get out ahead of it. And I wish when I was having that trouble, there was something like Lightstream there. Lightstream is a credit card consolidation loan, right? So here's the deal. Uh, Lightstream rewards customers who have good credit with a great interest rate and no fees. You can get a credit card consolidation loan from 5.89% APR with auto pay, okay? So check this out. The loans range anywhere from $5,000 to $100,000. You choose your funding date. You can make it as soon as today. And then you can actually start to get above this interest rate, the one that hangs over your head. It's the new modern-day albatross, people. Credit card interest rates are coming after you, and Lightstream wants to help you out. And guess us what? Unspooled listeners get an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. Uh, the only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash unspooled. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash unspooled lightstream.com slash unspooled uh it's subject to credit approval rate includes 0.50 percent auto pay discount terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice i've always wanted to say that i've always hear it i always want to say it um visit lightstream.com for more information it's summer and there's a great podcast that goes perfectly with summer. It's a podcast about Jaws. Um, I love this podcast. I've been listening to it. Uh, I listened to Inside Exorcist, Inside Psycho. Now they're doing a brand new podcast called Inside Jaws. And it's written and hosted by Mark Ramsey, um, same guy who did the other two. It takes you on this immersive journey through the making of 1975's pulse-pounding hit film Jaws, the first ever summer blockbuster, and it's great. Uh, you hear it from the perspective of J.J. Abrams. You see Steven Spielberg in his house just being freaked out about this movie kind of falling apart. Um, it's everything that you wanted to know about Jaws, uh, but no one ever compiled in one spot. We're going to talk about Jaws on Unspooled here, and this is kind of a great uh, synergy to be listening to this and our episode as well. Uh, it's this rare access to Steven Spielberg uh, from the making of his first 8mm Western film as a young Boy Scout uh, to the making of this groundbreaking film, which no one thought was going to be good. Hear it now by subscribing to Inside Jaws on Apple Podcasts or heading to wondery.fm slash Inside Jaws. Or you can listen to the first four episodes ad-free by signing up for Wondery Plus at Wondery.com slash plus. That's W-O-N-D-E-R-Y dot com slash P-L-U-S. Okay, everybody, we're going to take a brief break in the podcast right now to actually talk to someone who was involved in the making of Platoon. Again, I was away shooting a movie. 
when Amy was able to conduct this interview, but I think you're going to find it really enjoyable. This is with Dale Dye, and I'll let Amy take it away. It is my honor today to sit down with Captain Dale Dye, who was the military advisor on Platoon, and I can already vouch that he has a fantastic handshake. It is just fantastic to meet you. Hello. Thank you for coming into Unspooled. Thanks, Amy. It's uh, it's great to be here. It's uh, great to talk about one of my favorite pictures and uh, the thing that actually kickstarted my career. And which is why I want to start with just asking you about that day that you first met Oliver and you had this powwow about how to make a proper military film. Yeah, weird thing. I uh, I had this idea that, that I had a better way of, of making military films uh, – sing for an audience, uh, be more relatable for an audience, be more accurate. And it was a tough sell to Hollywood who'd done military pictures for years and years and years and didn't need a new guy with a new weird idea. I found out that uh, a heretofore relatively unknown writer-director by the name of Oliver Stone uh, was going to do this great war picture uh, based on his own experience as a combat infantryman in Vietnam. Well, I knew that, that it needed the motion picture genre needed a good Vietnam picture uh, because everything up to that time had sucked like a Hoover vacuum cleaner. And and through a, a series of events, which uh, the statute of limitations probably hasn't run out on yet, uh, I was able to get Oliver's number. And uh, because he was Oliver Stone and, and kind of liked left-handed approaches, uh, he agreed to meet with me and listen to what I had to say. And it was it was kind of interesting. It was like two dogs meeting each other on the street. You know, they kind of sniff each other's butts and and see if their bona fides uh, are really work. Uh, this is a crude question, but how did, how did you quote unquote sniff Oliver Stone's butt? Well, you know, you just look a guy in his beady ass eyeballs, and and you see whether he's telling you the truth or or uh, or what his motivations are and what kind of guy he is. And I think on a subliminal level, we connected as two combat veterans. But he he had visionary uh, ideas about how the, about the truth telling of of what we experienced in Vietnam, and that really sang to me. I said, "Yeah, look, absolutely." But you know, and I know, Oliver, that the only way to really get those actors, whoever you cast, whoever you pick, uh, they can read your script, which is terrific, but they have no concept, no basis uh, to relate to the things that you've written. So what we need to do is we need to take them into the jungle and let me train them. Let me make them live like we did when we were young 19-year-old infantrymen in Vietnam. And, uh, you know, being Oliver, he liked that. He said, yeah, 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 you're going to hurt them some. I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to hurt them. Look, you can get the technical details of a picture right, and, and a lot of people have. What fails in my view and what has always failed in my view is how the actors perform in relation to each other, uh, how we relate to each other in extremis, um, how we come to love each other and rely on each other uh, when lives are on the line. The only way to really get some acquaintance with it, get some grip on it, is to get yourself in that situation. What were your first impressions of the cast? I mean, when you met Charlie and the whole gang, were you thinking, oh, I don't know if this guy can do this? Well, look, um, they were a gaggle of maggots. Uh, <laughs> but who isn't when they first climb off the bus for basic training? So I get that. And, you know, I've spent most of my life raising other people's children. So I, I get this. Did I have reservations about a few of them? Yeah. Um, but I felt 
and I was proved right, um, that if you isolate them and if you uh, shake all of the civilian crapola out of their head, if you, if you get them convinced that it's not all about how many lines do I have and how's my hair and how do I look, and that the mission is primary, it's, it's the only thing that counts. I didn't see anybody who wouldn't get that um, once I pushed them. The, the real key is to isolate them to the point and hurt them, work them out to the point where they forget about themselves and they only think about how do I keep away from that terrible white-haired bastard and, and how do I survive tomorrow. In my, in my training schedule, um, every evening, once a day, every evening, usually after chow, uh, I have a thing called stand down, and it's a quiet time where I talk to them, and I let them ask any question that's on their mind. What kind of questions do they ask? Well, you know, how does it feel to be shot? Uh, and I ought to know. Um, how does it feel when you get injected with morphine? And uh, they would ask these little actorly questions, and they understood it not only intellectually, but emotionally. Um, for instance, here, here's a for instance, uh, if you've got a moment. Um, I sat one evening, we were about six days into training, and uh, I sat one evening and I said, listen, you're walking along in a rice paddy, and your best buddy is right by your side, and you've known him all your life. He's grown up with you. And then, about halfway across that rice paddy, a shot rings out, and it catches him right between the running lamps, right between the eyes. He's dead before it crosses his mind. He goes down hard. Everybody goes flat. Now... I said to the assembled group, what do you feel? And I would get the typical answers. Oh, I, I feel afraid. I feel fear. Um, I feel uh, anger. Uh, I, I'm numb. And, and all of the expected answers. And the real answer is what you feel at that moment is joy, utter elation, because it wasn't you. And I said, that's going to live with you for the rest of your life. After that initial reaction, you'll think of yourself as a complete jerk. How could I have done that? How could I have felt that? And you'll feel guilty about it, and it'll stay with you for the rest of your life. And there was utter silence. And those are the kind of things that I had to communicate. Were there, were there other physical things you were considering pushing them through that you decided Maybe that would be taking it too far? No, frankly. Uh, there, were, there were times when I wanted to go further than, uh, than I really thought was smart. But look, I've been doing this, as I said. I've, I've been training men all my life, and I knew how far I could go. Uh, but I, I pulled no punches. Um, they, those packs that they humped up and down the jungle hills in the Philippines weighed 65, 70 pounds. Um, I let them get lost on land navigations exercises and said, you know what the hell with you? Sit out there and figure it out. I knew where they were, but they didn't. And here they were in the midst of this deep, dank jungle with bats flying out of caves and, and strange sounds that they weren't familiar with. But I wanted to see them work with each other. I wanted to see them say, listen, what do you think we ought to do? Here's what we ought to do. No, we'll do this. No, we'll... We'll stay here tonight, and when the sun comes up, we'll get a better idea of where we are. I let those things happen. Um, 
we, we used blank ammunition, of course. And I remember one evening that uh, uh, I had been teaching them how to fire short bursts from the M60 machine gun, which is a machine gun we carried in, in Vietnam. And it's a five to eight round burst. You don't want to hold back on the trigger and burn out the barrel and give your position away and everything else. So I would teach them peanut butter, peanut butter, peanut butter jam. And if you say that when you're back on the trigger, that'll be about five to eight rounds at the cyclic rate of the M60. And I would put them out on night defensive positions, spooky out there in the jungle at night. And I wanted them to get the experience of what it was like to sit out there knowing that maybe five, 10 feet away, that shadow is somebody with an AK that's going to kill you. And uh, so I put uh, Johnny Depp and uh, Charlie Sheen and one other man out on a night defensive position with an M60 machine gun. And I gave them 250 rounds of ammunition. And I said, now, if something moves out here, you fire two five to eight round bursts and then you get back in the perimeter because you're here to warn us. You're here to take care of the unit. And oh, yeah, we understand. We understand. And I knew they didn't. And so... What I did was I walked up the mountainside, this jungle mountainside, where I had discovered a herd of goats. And uh, I gathered the goats together because goats will gather around a shepherd anywhere you go. And I got them all around me. And then I ran them right through the position or this night defensive position. And this herd of goats came storming down the mountainside. And, of course, they panicked. They reached in and fired all 250 rounds of uh, machine gun ammunition without ever letting up on the trigger. And it was object lessons like that, I think, that communicated so much. I mean, you are basically on movie sets all the time. I don't know when you have time to go see movies. But when you do, what kind of movies do you like to go see? Well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm an inveterate uh, war movie guy. I think I've seen every war movie there is in any language. It doesn't make any difference. But, but when, I'm, when I'm looking to skate... Um, I love comedies. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a broad comedy guy. I can laugh at anything. Um, and, and there are other movies that just uh, hit me. Um, the Shape of Water, I think, was wonderful. And I, and I love great acting performances. Um, you know, I'll watch Steve McQueen or, or uh, George C. Scott and read a phone book. I don't care. How do you feel like the movies today are doing about representing the war on terror? Are they getting it right? No, um, they aren't. And, and that's okay. Look, um, one of the reasons that World War II movies, for instance, are remain popular and the biggest moneymakers in Hollywood in the war film genre, uh, frankly, is because um, it's black and white. You, you know who the bad guys are and you don't mind blowing them away. You know who the good guys are and you don't mind cheering for them. There aren't these ambiguous questions of what's your opinion and, uh, and religion doesn't enter into it and – I think the definitive war on terror movie has yet to be made and probably won't be made until if and when that war ever ends, yeah, in in 10 years or so. Uh, Platoon was 10 years after the war in Vietnam ended uh, that we were able to bring it out as kind of the definitive look at that war. Look, if you're you're a liberal that that wants, uh, you know, everybody to – join hands and dance around the maypole. That sounds Uh, great to me. Yeah, but it's not going to happen because we're tribal. If you come from that perspective, then who are the bad guys? Who's the good side and who's the bad side in a movie? If you come from the other perspective, who are the bad guys and who are the good guys in the movie? And and it's so ambiguous. What was it like to, after making serious war pictures, then jump to Tropic Thunder? 
Listen, as I said, I love, I dearly love comedy. I think one of the problems with veterans is we, we take ourselves way too damn seriously. You know, laugh at it. I mean, my experience in uniform was that we used dark humor all the time. Some of the things we called each other and talked about, I can't even tell you. But uh, And so when when uh, films like Sergeant Bilko and uh, Tropic Thunder come up, hell, I'm the first volunteer. You know, hey, you know, let me, let me do this. I mean, Ben Stiller talked to me about Tropic Thunder, you know, and he said, uh, you know, uh, this is kind of – some of this is a little bit based on what you do in Hollywood. And I said, great, man. Let's just laugh at it. And the broader it is, the better I appreciate it. I think – I think my only defining element, the only caveat I would throw at you in this is, if you're going to laugh at us, laugh at us for the right things. I mean, don't make us do stuff that under no circumstances would we ever do um, as as military men and women or, or veterans. Just get it right, and then we'll laugh right with you. We'll laugh like hell. So I, I love things like that. Well, I was wondering if in the three decades since you made Platoon, where you've continued to be a military advisor— is it almost easier now to tell directors about how to get it right because they've seen what you've done right for all the, all the other past movies? Is it now a shorthand? Your career is sort of looping in on itself? Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't have to sell it much anymore. They expect it of me. Oh, it's the Captain Die method. And, and I have a, a little bit more gravitas, a little bit more uh, – they are more likely to listen to me both as a, as a military advisor and as a filmmaker. They say, oh, this, this guy knows – what drama is, you know, he can, he can help us with this. Uh, I'm, I'm no longer viewed as that knuckle dragging, nose picking military guy. I'm also a filmmaker and, and, uh, and it's a, a pretty good company, uh, to be joining. Well, Captain Dale died. This has been an honor. Thank you so much for coming in to talk to us on Unspooled today. My pleasure. I hope I didn't bore anybody, <laughs> but there you have it. People, do you love to sleep? Yes, you do. So do I. And I love to sleep on something that is comfortable and makes me feel at home. And that is a Casper mattress. Uh, I've been traveling a lot and I've been sleeping on non-Casper mattresses. And I have to tell you that night that I come home to my own bed, it feels so great. It almost feels like I'm on a hotel mattress at home, like a good hotel mattress, not the crappy hotel mattresses that I'm on. I don't want to overcomplicate it here, but I want to tell you this. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. You got three mattresses. You got the original Casper. You got the Wave. You got the Essential. These mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. And not to mention, the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. It's delivered right to your door in a small, how do they do that, kind of box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is this. You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. Now, I've been having... Uh, great luck with my Casper. But I'm hearing about these new mattresses now. I'm like, should I get a new Casper? Maybe I should. What's the essential? What's the wave? I don't know what the differences are. I'm just sleeping on uh, the original Casper, and it's damn good. Maybe I'm missing out. Maybe I should invest again. That's how much I like it. I should get another Casper. Two Caspers? Should I sleep on a bunch of Caspers like the Princess and the Pea? Just stack them up? I'd be comfortable in them. I'll tell you that much. Um, here's the deal, people. You spend a third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Please be comfortable. Uh, I will tell you, uh, if you live in an apartment uh, and you're like, oh, I don't want to get a mattress delivered. How am I going to do it? It comes in a box, like an Amazon box. Pop pop it open. Blah, 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 blah. It just like explodes. You just got to like 
just it's cool. It's really cool. It's kind of like uh, bring home a gremlin. You look at it like oh, it looks cute. Oh my god, it's actually a fully functional thing. That's also when the the Mogwai is going to gremlins. I, I meant Mogwai. I didn't mean gremlin. Anyway, get fifty dollars off slick mattresses by visiting Casper.com/slash. Unspooled and using Unspooled at checkout. So you got to make sure you use Unspooled at checkout. That helps us. That's casper.com slash Unspooled. Offer code Unspooled for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. How about that? That was even better than I could have expected. And I'm glad I wasn't there because I feel like he would have whipped me into shape. And I don't know if I could have handled it. Uh, thank you, Dale Dye. And uh, let's get back into talking about Platoon. Where do you fall on this film as far as, you know, from a filmmaking perspective, do you think this is Oliver Stone's best work? No. Okay, interesting. I will say, and I'm biased on this. You know that I'm a big Tom Cruise person. Yes. Uh, and in my Tom Cruise book, I do a chapter on Born on the Fourth of July. And I love Born on the Fourth of July. And I think it's such a better film. And I wish really? it was in the top 100 instead. Interesting. Because Born on the Fourth of July is able to comment even further about the way we picture soldiers and masculinity. Because what Oliver Stone does with Born on the Fourth of July is he looks at the other big military movie in 1986, casts that guy, Tom Cruise, Maverick, as a man going through absolute hell, coming back from Vietnam, crippled, crying. He takes our idea of what a hero looks like in an action movie like this and tears him apart even further than the people get in Platoon and shows us how America is culpable, how we might cheer on a maverick, but when a maverick comes home paralyzed, we don't care. Do you think of these movies as maybe companion pieces, though? I think for Tom Cruise, Born on the Fourth of July is almost an apology for Top Gun. Because he felt like he had encouraged a lot of people to sign up for the military, which is true. Like military enrollment skyrockets after Top Gun. And then Platoon comes out. So maybe people are like, oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hold on. Hold on. And it was his way of putting the grief back into war. So people didn't think it was just as easy as Top Gun made it look. And I think that Oliver Stone felt a little bit of the same way, too. Not that Platoon made the war look cool, although I do wonder about the little boys who watch Platoon, and they're like, yeah, I'm badass, and I'm shooting people, and that's what that movie's about, and they get it tied in with Rambo and everything. Well, you also look at it, and you can pick a side. You can pick a side. Like, you know, in that village sequence, Charlie Sheen is not telling you how to feel. I think that's the thing that I watch that village sequence, and I'm just horrified at it. And you even watch Charlie Sheen in that moment um, get kind of freaked out and he starts shooting at that uh, severely disabled uh, boy and you don't know how to feel in that moment. You're like, oh, do we lose our hero of this movie? Because he's going crazy too. Everyone's kind of going off the rails there and they're angry because their friends had been killed and you can feel it on either side. So I think there is this energy in that scene where do you take your anger and do you turn it back at whoever is in front of you? Like, oh, we should be peaceful. I think we just show levels of how peaceful we should be. It's like, yeah, you shouldn't rape the townspeople, but we should light all their houses on fire. Which is also a form of death. I mean, you burn their rice. We already see that these people have no food. Yeah. Otherwise, they're already on the brink of starving. And to destroy their food supply, it is a type of death. Well, and when you hear that uh, that Vietnamese woman saying, like, "You, why did you kill our pig? We're farmers. What are you doing? Like, even that... A lot of the times in another Vietnam movie, you might just hear the uh, Vietnamese and not have a translator. Johnny Depp's character there is giving you a sympathetic side of these people that we don't understand. 
Yeah, well, what I'm curious about is we've had some stories spill out of that day. Like Kevin Dillon has talked about how he and and Charlie Sheen pooled all of their per diem money to help the kid that they shoot at um, get eye surgery. They fixed his cataract for him. They used their money because they felt so bad. And there's also stories about how Oliver Stone himself would look around that village and it reminded him so closely of what he had seen. He felt quiet. He couldn't really deal with it. But the story I've never heard that I really want to hear is that the Vietnamese people they had in the village were actual Vietnamese refugees living in the Philippines. And what was that day like for them? Because we're talking about Stone reliving his trauma. This is their trauma. And I've never heard anybody say how the extras handled that shoot. Thinking about Platoon and its place in the culture, thinking about the pairing of Oliver Stone and Martin Scorsese, honestly, as people who met in 1969, 1970, I started to think, how much of this AFI list, how much of this culture is influenced by the mentality of Oliver Stone? I mean, we've got Taxi Driver on the list. We've got Platoon. We've got this basically Oliver Stone being very damaged from war mindset that filtered into our culture and I think became a template for a lot of future directors about what war was like, what toughness is like, what masculinity is like. I think what his lasting impact will always be is showing you the other side of something. You're seeing what PTSD is really like. You're seeing what the war is really like. We're seeing what Wall Street is really like. We're seeing the side of the JFK assassination that no one talked about. You know, I think he did a a great job of kind of saying like, no, we are not this happy culture. Yes, you look up to these people who work on Wall Street as cool like raiders, but they are trash people that are actually wrecking your jobs. And it's interesting because in 1986, when this movie came out, we're talking about a time where, you know, the music was like Billy Joel and Robert Palmer and the movies were Top Gun and Crocodile Dundee and Karate Kid Part 2 and a Magnum P.I. and Hill Street Blues and Cagney and Lacey and Cheers. You know, I and think— And he's saying, where's your conscience? Right. And it's hitting at this moment where our entertainment is glossy, but then what's going on Besides that is like the Iran-Contra affairs happening. All of a sudden we're seeing, oh, wait, our president sold weapons to our enemy, you know. And, and then, then the guy who did it is now in charge of the NRA in 2018? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting time. And Russia and the USSR are kind of coming to terms and having a breakthrough on a peace side. And, you know, it, there's a lot of stuff happening here. Smoking is now banned. The Challenger explodes. Like there's a lot going on here that I think this movie speaks to. It's like it's not all as it seems. And I think where our entertainment is showing us positive things, our world is showing us something that is a little bit more corrupt. I love that you just mentioned the Challenger explosion because that's one of my very first memories. Me too. And it really did shape how I thought of the world, Like especially hearing you describe it that way, the context of it. Before it exploded, I was told, everything is great. A teacher is going to space. And that was the first moment I remember as a very young kid thinking, oh, no, adults have no idea what's happening. Well, and it just seemed like that doesn't happen. We don't – we're not – wait, that can't happen. Like, what is the the reason? And I think, you know, probably our parents felt that way with JFK being assassinated. And, you know, I think there's another group of people who feel that way when, you know, uh, 9-11 happened. And I think you continually hit these markers where we're jaded because we've seen something. And then 
a new generation is seeing that happen for the first time. It's a sad marker of your life, but you will, everyone will go through that. And it makes me feel guilty that I'm a little bit jaded towards the world of Platoon because I think we're going to have this conversation a lot with these films. We saw the ripple effect of them later. I've grown up in the war right. is hell and chaos exactly like this. And I feel bad that I'm jaded towards that. Oliver Stone's twisted brain, I really appreciate it because we talk a lot about like people who are problematic, people who go too far with things, but I feel like the rainbow of cinema needs these people. Like I yeah. like having a Michael Moore around too. I like having people who are on the margins pushing us, saying like, hey, does this get under your skin? Hey, what do you think about this? Because I think we need it for art to react, to grow, to bounce off of anything, even if I don't necessarily like Platoon, because I think Platoon gets... A little bit heavy in its themes. You know, the narration is a bit much. These letters that Charlie Sheen is sending to his grandmother, which feel very much like Oliver Stone just pontificating in the large view about war is. In valuable ways. I think it's so valuable to point out that the people fighting in the infantry are poor people, not the rich kids. Unless you're Charlie Sheen, who signed up because you're a little bit crazy. But these speeches don't sound like they come from Charlie Sheen themselves. Like, here's one. Well, here I am. Anonymous, all right with guys nobody really cares about. They come from the end of the line, most of them. Small towns you never heard of. Pulaski, Tennessee. Brandon, Mississippi. Pork Band, Utah. Wampum, Pennsylvania. Two years high school's about it. Maybe if they're lucky, a job waiting for them back in a factory. But most of them got nothing. They're poor. They're the unwanted. Yet they're fighting for our society and our freedom. It's weird, isn't it? At the bottom of the barrel, and they know it. Maybe that's why they call themselves grunts, because a grunt can take it, can take anything. They're the best I've ever seen, Grandma, the heart and soul. Hey, cheese dick, you're up. What? You're up. Really quick, at the risk of ruining that very serious moment, what do you think a cheese dick is? Is it a dick made out of cheese, or is it that maybe... You're not changing your underwear and cheese is forming around. That's what I think it is. Yeah, I think it's like the cheese around your dick. It's like the sexual cheese or it's the, uh, yeah, it's it's the the unwashed cheese. Uh, Well, okay, cool. (laughs) But no, but you're right. Like listening to that, um, I was taking it out of context, which was what we're doing. and, And I'm like, oh, I don't know if he would have this perspective yet. Like He just got there. That's from pretty early in the movie. It feels like he would have that perspective after he got home, like these are letters he might be writing in the hospital. These are not letters he's writing off the plane because you're watching his evolution. Um, but I also feel like this is a trope of those movies. Um, speaking of Oliver Stone and tropes, I wanted to play just a, a section of something that I've always remembered. Um, and this is from the Ben Stiller show. And uh, it's for a theme park called Oliver Stoneland. Hi, I'm Oliver Stone. And this summer I invite you to witness my latest creation. It's Oliver Stoneland! Welcome to the future site of Oliver Stoneland, my own amusement park. Let me be your host as I usher you through reality. My reality. A magical place where the objective is not to escape, but to confront. But beware, this ride may remove your will to live. Okay, two things. Uh, one, 
Wow, yes, that's another sacred uh, Indian Native American character. I guess yeah. that's an Oliver Stone <laughs> favorite. Uh, two, Ben Stiller never got over being rejected, did he? Look, there's uh, movies that I've auditioned for. I still hold a grudge. <laughs> Michael Bay. <laughs> you know, I do think that Ben Stiller dodged a bullet getting brutally, 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 brutally rejected from being in Platoon. Because I'll admit, you know, my knowledge of Charlie Sheen is a little bit circular. I'm like yeah. a young guns girl who loved oh, young 100%. guns. Then I got really into hot shots, which, by the way, the idea that he did this and hot shots. Crazy. Yeah. It, if I picture like him and Tom Cruise on these two parallel lines, Cruise goes from the cheerful film to, okay, wait, no, let's get real. Yeah. And Charlie Sheen just goes down that roller coaster. He's like, no, 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 let's go from the real film to the comedy. Yeah. He's like getting out. He's like, I don't need to go that deep again. Yeah, I'm done. I'm done. But there are some fascinating interviews done with Charlie Sheen right when he got back from Platoon that show he was already the Charlie Sheen that I didn't know that he was until all hell broke loose in Charlie Sheen's world a couple of years ago. He's sitting in uh, a bar in Hollywood talking to this re- reporter from People magazine, and he's saying things to this reporter like, I just like to drink beer and check out butts. And he takes out a piece of paper and shows it to this reporter. And it is a list of women who are numbered 1 through 25. And some of them are starred with numbers like one star, three stars, like it's a Michelin restaurant. And other ones just have labels like breasts, jacuzzi, and cheerleader. Which kind of blows my mind just to realize, you know, hey, there's destiny, I suppose. We always are who we were meant to be. But also there's destiny even involved in Charlie Sheen. Doing this movie, I mean, his father did Apocalypse Now. He was there in the Philippines as his dad is going through hell, going back to the Philippines to shoot his own version of going through hell, which is maybe why I can empathize with the fact that he then grew up to be a guy who has a tattoo of Charlie Brown on his chest saying mom and another (laughs) tattoo on his chest. Have you seen this tattoo? He has another tattoo on his chest over his heart. That's a little sign, the kind you might see in a cafe in a small town that just says back in 15 minutes. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, you know, and to think that he wasn't even going to be this part. Emilio was uh, closely considered to be the lead of this film. Charlie auditioned when the film first had its financing, and Oliver Stone was like, nope, you're not right for it. You're too young. And then when they got financing again, he just met him, didn't even audition him. And it was like, okay, now you're ready. Oh, and you know, Charlie Sheen also was quoted as saying that when he got off the plane in the Philippines— Smells of that country just kind of immediately brought him back to being a child and being there with his dad. You know, maybe he's even working out some trauma in there as well. Oh, and Charlie Sheen isn't even just the only son of a famous guy dude in here. You also have uh, Francesco Quinn in this movie who's playing the character of Ra. That's Anthony Quinn's kid. Anthony Quinn is one of my favorite actors. Oh, really? Yeah, so there's something in Stone that was like, I'm going to go through all the Rolodexes of everybody who— Audiences my age love, and I'm going to find their kid, and then I'm going to torture them for two months. (laughs) I mean, it makes sense. I mean, Oliver Stone was not on uh, the top of his game in this movie. He was so sleep-deprived at certain points that he started to threaten people uh, on the set, like, where did you put my film? Where did you put my film? And he was, you know, yelling at his editor, and his editor's like, I didn't put it anywhere. We haven't shot that scene yet. You know, like that, like, Oliver Stone is working out a lot of of issues there, uh, too. Um, I do love watching this movie just purely from a casting standpoint, too, because you're seeing... People like Forrest Whitaker, and, and you mentioned before, Kevin Dillon, John C. McGinley, who we talked about briefly too, just like an Oliver Stone staple of just being like an asshole. He 
is great at casting or was great at casting. He, I, I think that when you look at that cast, you feel like he found the perfect people, like everybody in that film. The one person who I really loved was Reggie Johnson, who was just one of the, uh, you know, one of the people in the platoon. His name was Junior. And he barely worked again. Um, you know, I looked on his IMDb. He was in a couple of things in the 80s. And I was like, oh, maybe he passed away. He seemingly has not passed away. But he That's just so kind of just went away. You know, like. I mean, Junior also has one of the more embarrassing deaths in the movie. He's the guy who passes out asleep in the very beginning. Yeah. Who passes out in the beginning during that very first overnight ambush watch scene. Uh, tries to blame it on Charlie Sheen that they get attacked. And at the end, his death is basically he runs screaming out of a foxhole, hits himself in the head with a tree. He just runs right into oh. a tree and then wakes up just in time to get killed. I mean, that stabbing of his character is – it's so, again, using this word, like, unglamorous. It's so, like – and now you're dead. And you see his body just writhing as he's getting stabbed in the stomach by that bayonet. And you would think at that point – oh, that guy will kind of go on and his career will kind of explode into a different direction. But like we were talking with Danny Nucci, sometimes the film is bigger than the actor. This movie obviously wins a lot of awards. I mean, this is the critical darling of the year, best picture, best director, uh, best editing, best sound. Uh, it didn't win any of the acting nominations, but uh, or screenplay. He was nominated against himself for screenplay, wasn't he, for you're, the film Salvador? You're right, which he wrote with uh, Richard Boyle. But that year, actually, Woody Allen won um, for Hannah and His Sisters. Another interesting nominee that year, Paul Hogan, for a little movie called Crocodile Dundee. That was nominated for Best Screenplay. I love that screenplay. I mean, the part where he thinks the dudes at the cool Manhattan party are snorting eucalyptus because they have colds and he dumps it into boiling water. <laughs> I forgot about that scene. Um, My dad always made me do the eucalyptus in hot water thing. So every single time I was like, what is that other cool stuff that the guys are doing? That looks fun too. <laughs> All right. So what about people? What did people think of this film? Most people really adored Platoon. I think it was useful in that it started a conversation among vets to their family members is the story that you always hear the people from this time saying that for the first time they were really able to show a Vietnam film to their kids, to their wives, and say, this is what it was like. I have a hard time talking about it, but this is what it was like. Although a few Vietnam vets did watch the film afterwards, and they were like, well, okay, but you have these scenes where the Viet Cong are, like, walking right behind a bright light. They would never do that. Right. Because you have, you're also torn between trying to make it look as messy and chaotic as war, and then the fact that war was even messier than this. They were fighting in absolute pitch blackness, but Oliver Stone couldn't make a solidly black movie, otherwise everybody would have walked out of it. Of course, yeah. Or said technical difficulties. Um, Roger Ebert said something really interesting when it came out that actually connects slightly to Bonnie and Clyde. He said that Francois Truffaut said it is not possible to make an anti-war movie because all war movies with their energy and sense of adventure end up making combat look like fun. But... Roger Ebert says that if Truffaut had seen Platoon, if he had lived long enough to see Platoon, the, which Ebert calls the best film of 1986, he would have changed his mind because this film finally made war look awful. Oh, interesting. But that's not fun. Who wants to hear a compliment? Let's talk about Pauline Kael trashing this movie. Okay, great. I because can't of, wait. <laughs> because, of course, Pauline Kael trashed this movie. Here's some excerpts from her big pan of Platoon. We can surmise that Stone became a grunt in Vietnam to, quote-unquote, become a man and to become a writer. 
As Platoon, a coming-of-age film demonstrates, he went through his rite of passage, but as Platoon also demonstrates, he became a very bad writer, a hype artist. Wow. When he doesn't destroy things with the voiceover banalities or a square line of dialogue, he may do it with a florid gesture, such as having the Christ figure Sergeant Elias run away from the Viet Cong who are firing at him towards a departing helicopter, which is his only chance for life, and lift his arms to heaven. Elias is supposed to represent true manliness, but if Stone's other films tell us anything, if this film tells us anything, it's that Stone is temperamentally more on the side of the crazy stud Barnes. The preppy narration extolling the nobility of the common man is worse than a quote-unquote privileged boy's guilt. It is a grown man's con. Wow. She sees through everybody. She's Look at her. savage. However, she does also say in the review, she calls Oliver Stone several times a good director. And that's one of the things I've always admired about Pauline Kael as a critic is she was able to distinguish between bad movie, but you're really good at making this bad movie because she was very much into the politics of what a film was getting into as well. Right. I can totally get what she's saying. And I almost feel like this movie, the visual is what you're connecting with. And it's an interesting thing. He's telling a story through visuals. I don't think anyone else could kind of write it because the dialogue is ultimately sparse for a two-hour movie. I mean, it's there, obviously, but the filmmaking is what I was most impressed with. So I think she is right on the money about that. Yeah, I feel kind of torn in that same way where I'm happy for Oliver Stone's sake he was able to make Platoon. It feels like this was therapy for him and possibly anti-therapy for the Vietnamese people who are his extras and anti-therapy for most of the cast. But it feels like a valuable film that Americans needed to see. I don't know if I feel like it's AFI Top 100 valuable, especially when we have two other Vietnam films in there. It's a lot of Vietnam. There's a lot of Vietnam on this list. I'm curious about this because I feel like, and maybe I'm going on this you know, path where I'm just enjoying the experience of each one of these, but those other films, I really want to see how they stack up with this one because they're each doing something differently. And I think we're coming back to this argument of, Is it there because it created a new wave of filmmaking or is it there because it actually belongs there because it's actually one of the best films of all time? Right, that difference between important and great. Or I might even say valuable and great. I feel like Platoon is valuable, but I don't know if I feel like it's great. Like it telegraphs so heavily that Elias is going to die. He's like, you put me over there, there's friendly fire. Right. Like, we know, we know. Or the guy taking out the picture of his girlfriend. He's like, look, it's my it's my lovely Lucy Jean. And you're like, oh, here we go. I'm very curious, and I'd like to watch Born on the Fourth of July just to kind of see if that's um, something even better. So you're saying that you would feel happy if this was not on the list. Yeah, I would. Half of me says I would want Born on the Fourth of July instead. And another half of me says, is there a cutoff of too much Vietnam? Because honestly, I'm wondering if the people who vote on these lists, who I do think are slightly more men than female. What would give you that idea? The fact that there are no (laughs) female directors represented on this list at all? Uh, Yeah, there's that. That's definitely (laughs) one thing. I think that war films sometimes serve as like a male romantic film. Because it's about the men loving each other in this camp and getting into fights. It's about friendship. I think war films are a way for men to have films about friendship, which is pretty rare. And so I think that we have a lot of war films on this list because it's really the genre where men get to wrestle with emotions. Well, I I would say that the thing that, again, really brought me in was the first half of this film. And I was really looking for that feeling in the second half of the film. And I think the second half of the film – 
became a little bit more predictable. I feel that way about Full Metal Jacket, too. I think the first half of the film is just mind-blowing. And, you know, it's like, why do we need to go forward? A hugely top spot. I think it's a great example of Oliver Stone telling a story that had not been told from a perspective that we had never heard. You hear about the deer hunter. You hear about Apocalypse Now in the context of conversations about war films. Platoon is not often mentioned with those two other films. I mean, at least my experience of it, when we rolled the die here, I was like, oh, yeah, Platoon, that's from my childhood, not from everyone talks about Platoon. Yeah, and here's where I'm going to get a little conspiracy theory about this, kind of like I did when we were talking about why Swing Time was on the list and not another Fred Astaire movie. We were saying that Swing Time might be on because it had just been put into the Library of Congress. I think Platoon was voted on over, say, Born on the Fourth of July, if it had to be one of those Oliver Stone Vietnam films in the slot, because Platoon won more Oscars. But I think Platoon won more Oscars because it came out just two years before Born on the Fourth of July. I think people didn't award Born on the Fourth of July as many Oscars because they felt like they just gave it to Oliver Stone for that other Vietnam movie. So there's this domino effect of maybe that's the better film this whole time. But it doesn't get written into history because of those statues, and it doesn't get written into the history because of the statues, because of when it came. And it, I mean, maybe that's true. Maybe yeah. I'm insane. Maybe I have been taking hits from Will and Defoe's Gun Bong. But no. that's what I wonder. Yeah, I think there's a lot of politics that go into making this list. I don't know if this list is a pure list, and I think it's hard to make a list of a hundred things and not fall into some of those traps because. Right now we talk about nine films. It's easy to keep track of, you know, nine, ten films. But when you get into the hundreds, I do think things slip in through the cracks simply because there's not enough pull against it and there's not enough pull for it. You know, so you kind of wind up with these weird outliers. I think we're going to find that a lot more. These obligation films almost. Like Platoon, that was a big deal. We're obligated to vote it in. Why? I don't know. Yeah. So I guess to sum up where we're both at – I think I was a little bit more emotionally affected by this movie. This The first half of this movie totally effed me up. Um, but now as we talk about it, I can kind of separate that and say, I think this is a good movie that I really enjoyed, that I think showed violence in a way and showed people in a way that I had not yet seen that still affected me, unlike Bonnie and Clyde. But I'm not sure it's a great, fully fleshed out, Film. Maybe Wait, not. I have a question for you. Yeah. When you were playing Platoon, the Nintendo game, do you win? How do you win that game? Um, you're trying to map tunnels. It was a very hard game. It was not a fun game to play, but you had to, like, map these little tunnels. And um, I guess at the end, you uh, win the Vietnam War. If you, if you do it right. <laughs> if you do it right, you win the Vietnam War. It's uh, time to take out our magical die and roll it to yeah. the next position. All right, Paul, you ready for this? Okay, here we go. Are you going to take us dice? Ooh, what do we got there? Number 18. Ooh. What's that? 18 is The General. (gasps) Buster Uh, Keaton? Yes, Buster Keaton movie made in 1927. This is exciting. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen this movie. you never seen Old Stone Face in action? No, I haven't. I'm actually very excited, but I don't think that I'm alone in not being fully versed in the world of Buster Keaton. So we ask of you again to give us a call and let us know what you think The General is about. But do it. Before you see the movie, uh, I will be doing the same, and you can give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 
5824. We cannot wait to hear from you, and we keep this conversation going on our Twitter page, at Unspooled, so please join us there as well. All right, Amy, I'm excited. This was a good conversation. All right, Paul, it's always good being in the trenches with you. I know. <laughs> I'll hide under your body, just like John C. McGinley, in oh, case wait. the shit goes down. I'm dead? <laughs> All right, we'll see you next week for The General. Hope you enjoyed that episode of Platoon. And now, as promised, here is that clip of Stanley Kubrick explaining the ending of 2001. I've, I've tried to avoid doing this ever since the picture came out because when you, uh, when you uh, just say uh, the ideas, they sound uh, foolish, whereas if they're dramatized, uh, one feels it. But I'll try. I mean, the idea was supposed to be that um, he is... Uh, taken in by uh, uh, godlike entities, uh, creatures of pure uh, energy and intelligence with no shape or form. And um, they uh, put him uh, in what I suppose you could describe as a human zoo and uh, to study him. And he spends, his whole life passes from that point on in that room and he has no sense of time. Um, It just seems to happen as it does in the film. Mm-hmm. And um, they choose this room, which is uh, a very uh, inaccurate uh, replica of uh, French architecture, yeah. deliberately so inaccurate, because, uh, you know, one was suggesting that they had some idea of something that he might think was pretty, but um, weren't quite sure, just as we aren't quite sure what to do in zoos with, with animals. This is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Fake nuts. Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Ah, uh, yes. I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I mean, Jazos. <laughs> Ruler of the Eighth Circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who does?
doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.